One of the best kept secrets about the transformation of primary care practice in the U.S. is that everyone's role is getting a fresh look, from physicians and physician assistants to nurses and nurse practitioners to health coaches and counselors to nutritionists and medical assistants and receptionists. Who does what these days has more to do with putting the patient first than ever before. The skills of clinical and non-clinical staff still matter, but where once these distinctions might have created delays and bottlenecks, now they're becoming starting points for all kinds of discoveries and redesign. There's a buzz going on in primary care clinics today, and it's not just the buzz of new computer systems and electronic medical records. The medical assistant may see you first on this edition of WIHI. And welcome to WIHI, an online audio talk show from the Institute for Health care improvement. As many of you know, we come to you bi-weekly and also for your later listening and convenience via IHI.org and on iTunes. I'm your host and producer, Madge Kaplan, and I'm also IHI's Director of Communications. So change is hard. I don't have to tell the audience that. And we still don't have all the systems lined up, including the payment systems, to fully reward and recognize the innovators in primary care today. But staff have pretty much moved ahead anyway, and those taking part in LEAP, which stands for Learning from Effective Ambulatory Practices, are Exhibit A. A reminder about Twitter, if you do like to tweet, please use the hashtag IHI and at the IHI is our handle. So I want to now introduce our guests and a reminder that they have longer bios and all sorts of achievements and accomplishments. Uh, you can find some of that on our own WIHI web pages as well as their own organizations. So first we're going to start with the phone. Ed Wagner is joining us today from North Carolina, um, but he's actually usually uh, elsewhere. Um, he's a general internist and epidemiologist and director emeritus of the McCall Center for Healthcare Innovation at the Group. Health Research Institute. He and his McCall Institute colleagues developed the chronic care model, which I'm sure many of you are familiar with. Ed and co-director Margaret Flinter, whom we hope is also able to tune in today, are leading this deep dive to learn from some 30 pioneering primary care practices. Welcome, Ed. So two of these pioneer, excuse me, pioneering practices are here in the Boston area. So we did go a bit local for today's WIHI. Kirsten Meisinger is here in the studio. She's the medical director of the Union Square Family Health Center, a community health center in Somerville, Massachusetts, that's part of the Cambridge Health Alliance. Union Square Family Health Center offers full-spectrum family medicine care, and you'll get more details on that in a moment. Welcome, Kirsten. Thank you, Madge. And Kirsten's counterpart, Sitting across the table here, also in the studio, is Thad Schilling, an internist at Harvard Vanguard, excuse me, Harvard Vanguard Medical Associates, and medical director of the Patient-Centered Medical Home, which has been designed and implemented at the Harvard Vanguard Medford, Massachusetts site. Welcome, Thad. Thanks. It's a pleasure to be here. All right. And next to Thad and across from me is Tressa Torres. She's a senior vice president at the Institute for Healthcare Improvement and overseeing our work in many areas, including the transformation of primary care. Before joining IHI, Tricia served for 18 years as medical director of Genesis HealthWorks at Genesis Health System in Michigan. Welcome, Trissa. Hello, everyone. Great. All right, we're good to go. So here's the first thing uh, that we're going to do. Some of you know we like to just kind of grease the wheels on WIHI uh, with a quick poll. Uh, John is about to throw up some questions. This gives us a little better idea of what might have brought you to WIHI today and how we can continue 
to uh, support uh, some of the, your needs and issues uh, as we go forward with programming on WHI and elsewhere. So the poll is now there. Uh, you can spend the next 10 minutes. Uh, it'll be open and fill out. We're asking you to pick top three. The biggest challenges we face re- revisioning care teams are, and then you've got A through H to choose from. Since those of you uh, logged in can see those, I won't spend a lot of time answering them. If anybody on the phone uh, would actually like to see what those poll questions are, um, you can email us at info at IHI.org, and we'll be uh, sure to share those with you. If you don't get to answer during the program, you can surely let us know uh, your thoughts uh, after the fact. But we'll, um, these are the questions. This has to do with uh, what's going on in the ACO world, how to prioritize, uh, how to deal with many projects all at once. So please, we'd like you to pick your top three, and we'll uh, take a look at that poll later on in the program. All right, Ed Wagner, we're going to start with you, and we're going to plunge ahead. Um, so I, I just couldn't help myself by wanting to just ask you one sort of quick question. Which is harder, uh, converting to an electronic record today and implementing meaningful use or implementing new staffing models? Well, both are miserable, Matt. <laughs> okay. uh, I knew we'd get an honest answer. <laughs> yes. But, uh, but the, the problem with, this, with, with staffing models is there is very little guidance for practices that want to try uh, to do it in a different and better way. Uh, and that's the whole basis uh, for the LEAP project. Okay. All right. So two miserable things, and we're, we're working away at all of them. But uh, So let's talk about LEAP. As I uh, told folks, it stands for Learning from Effective Ambulatory Practices. You're in the middle of this whole initiative and started with 400 nominee sites down to 30. So tell us about this initiative, what you set out to learn, and perhaps what you've learned thus far. This is going to be the 30,000-foot view right now. But it's good. It's good for us to check in on this. Thanks, Ed. Well, quickly, uh, the history of LEAP is LEAP came, uh, evolved from an earlier project on the future of nursing. Uh, and what they found in that project was that much was known about what nurses do in the hospital, but very little was really known, very little that, that one could bank on was known about what nurses or, for that matter, other non-provider staff were doing in ambulatory care. So in the absence of evidence, the folks at the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation asked themselves, where could we go uh, to get information? And uh, what seemed to be the next best thing uh, was to find practices that were doing it well, that were innovators, that were high performers, study them intensively, find out what they were doing that might be translatable to other practices, and then try to disseminate that. And that's essentially the, the sort of history and rationale of, uh, of the LEAP project. Okay, so I understand that by this October, really, you visited all the 30 sites and done some of that deep diving. Uh, can you give us some sort of high-level things about what you've learned sort of across some of these sites? Well, first, uh, just a little about the sites. 
Madge, I think your audience may be interested. Uh, uh, first of all, we we purposely wanted a broad distribution and a, a representation of American primary care. So there are private practices, safety net practices, independent practices, practices associated with large systems like Cambridge Health Alliance or Harvard Vanguard. Uh, they are uh, the 30 uh, are across uh, uh, 20 different states. I see you have a map uh, up uh, for folks to sort of get a sense of where they are. What we wanted to learn, in, and we visited each of the 30, and we've completed the, the, that now. What we wanted to learn was was who were they hiring? How were they deploying those folks? How were they training those folks? And then what were they doing to actually build and then sustain uh, high-functioning practice teams? And then what we were looking for collectively across the 30 are those sort of common elements that seem to be, uh, seem, seem to be part and parcel of effective modern patient-centered medical home practice. Uh, and then our hope is uh, to distill that, uh, package it in a, in a useful way for other practices, uh, and then disseminate it. So um, what have you found? What, who's doing what right? Or what's well, I think right? the, the well, there are, all of them were doing things right. So uh, we were satisfied that we had, in fact, that our selection process uh, did, in fact, pick high-functioning, innovative practices. Uh, and what what we saw in these practices, first of all, they all have organized approaches. Uh, this is this this was a striking finding to the critical functions of primary care. So they all, for example, plan their visits ahead of time so that they don't uh, have things undone. Second, all have organized approaches to following patients after they leave the office so they can care for patients, especially the sicker patients, uh, between visits uh, telephonically and other ways. All were, in what varying ways, providing self-management support. All were doing things to manage referrals so that patients wouldn't fall between the cracks or information not get back to the practice. All were following their hospital discharges in various ways and so on. And then the, the kinds of innovations that we were seeing uh, was that uh, they all were making efforts to have everybody on the practice team work to what we call the top of the license. In other words, they were doing everything that certification and licensure in their particular state would allow uh, a person of that level of, uh, of training uh, to do. Second, they were all making efforts to integrate their services with other critical services, especially behavioral health. Uh, all were recognizing the important the importance of of a strong uh, ability to help patients with mental health and and behavioral uh, behavior change issues. Uh, 
most were getting involved in the care management of their complex multi-problem patients um, and applying, using different approaches, but all were, or were getting that. And then most were, were finding a variety of innovative ways to use talented, what I would call laypersons. In other words, these are people with, without nursing training or even medical assistant training, uh, bright young people who uh, are on the job market and finding health care a place to, to get started. Uh, and they're using these people as care coordinators or patient advocates or working with the electronic medical record to link it, to make it more consistent with work processes and so on. So those were some of the sorts of things that we saw, Madge. Thank you very much, Ed. Well, all very big areas unto themselves, but it's a great list. And um, now, uh, so thank you. Don't go away. And um, I think now to kind of illustrate uh, what Ed is talking about, and I want to also mention on that map slide, if John wants to just quickly show it again. Um, I put up, I, I forced John to stick up this uh, URL. You can't click on that, uh, so don't, it's not uh, hyperlinked in there, but you can note that link there, and you can find the list of the members or the sites in LEAP, and they're from uh, California, Colorado, Iowa, Louisiana, Massachusetts, Maine, uh, New Hampshire, uh, New Mexico, uh, West Virginia. So it's it's um, and and other states as well, Pennsylvania. So it's quite a range around the country, um, and uh, I think that's it says something also about uh, the pockets of you know where work is going on around the country. So I want to now um, turn things over uh, to Kirsten Meisinger and Thad Schilling. Um, one of the nice things about WHI is we often introduce guests to each other, even uh, people who are part of the same initiative. And so, um, you know, they, they uh, put their heads together to think about what kinds of things they'd like to tell you about uh, their respective um, clinics, uh, one in Medford, Massachusetts, and one in Somerville, Mass. So I'm going to turn it over. I think uh, Thad starts, Great, and, thanks, and they're going to sort of have the floor, uh, the two of them, uh, for the next several minutes. Go Great, ahead. Thank you. So um, as you mentioned before the session, Kirsten and I spoke, and we found that we actually have a lot of innovations in common. So we decided to go back and forth and talking about uh, one innovation at a time. And I'm going to start by talking about the role of the medical assistant and how that shifted in our practice. Um, Picking up on what Ed had mentioned before, there is a great opportunity with planned care visits to share care among non-clinical uh, team members. If you think about all the functions that are done in a traditional planned care visit, so much of that work does not need to be done by a provider. And so we've really used our medical assistants to um, augment those visits by doing a lot of pre-work, then taking uh, roles and responsibilities further through the visit itself, and then I'll talk a little bit about their role between visits. So as far as pre-visit process, are concerned. Our medical assistants are looking forward in our clinicians' schedules three weeks in advance and identifying needed lab tests before the visit, having those patients come to the lab so that we're actually working with data during the visit that's going to be most uh, valuable to the clinician and to the, and to the patient. So those visits uh, become much more productive and can be focused on clinical care. Those pre-visit lab orders are part of the standard order set that our medical assistants will uh, complete before 
um, and make sure that those uh, labs have been drawn prior to the visit. In addition, our patients for planned visits are sent pre-visit questionnaires, whether it's a, a planned uh, physical exam or periodic health review or a diabetes visit. Getting information beforehand really helps to decompress the visit. So our medical assistants will review with patients during check-in, past medical history, past surgical history, family history, and do all of that entry into our electronic medical record. One of the things that that clinicians had complained most bitterly about is that physicals become a a very um, uh, secretarial process at times, doing a lot of data entry, and this function is taken away almost completely by that process. In addition, we have a a pre-visit health maintenance chart scrub. So our medical assistants are reviewing uh, health records to look for when the next colonoscopy, the mammogram, bone density, and all immunizations are due so that by the time the patient arrives at the visit, the clinician already knows what those needed health maintenance uh, elements are. Um, turning a little bit more towards what might happen at the visit after the check-in process, for example, in the um, Medicare space doing uh, annual wellness visits, there are a number of different very checklisty-like functions that our medical assistants can perform, including beginning falls risk assessments and doing a get-up-and-go test if they find that patients are at high risk for falls, doing depression screening, ensuring that there's health proxy uh, information on file. So all of those standard elements that are part of a Medicare wellness visit can be taken directly away from the clinician and done by the medical assistant in advance. So those are those are examples of some of the types of things that we're having our medical assistants do around visits. We've also focused a lot on flow. And by that, I mean helping the clinician between each exam room visit to address all of those important but potentially deferrable tasks that happen throughout the day. The telephone call that comes in at 8 in the morning, if it's not answered until 5 in the afternoon, may become a problem. And we have our medical assistants attached to our clinician's electronic in-baskets, constantly looking through to find where important information is coming across the clinician desk. So, for example, while I'm in a room seeing a patient, my medical assistant is reviewing um, my health uh, electronic email messages and telephone calls and test results. And then as I come out of the room, she alerts me to the things that I need to be focused on. I do those between my visit to keep the flow of all of that deferrable work done throughout the course of the day. So that relationship has really improved the efficiency of our uh, primary care clinicians during the workday and has been a huge satisfier on the part of patients. We've located our medical assistants and our clinicians together in offices to really help to build that um, relationship. And as Ed alluded to, training is so critical. We actually spent about four hours of time with just the MA and the clinician talking about how they work together. That is the first time in the 10 years that I've been in the organization that I had a chance to sit down with my medical assistant and say, what is it that we do together and how do we do it? And that was a real breakthrough for a lot of folks. Wow. Very, very interesting. Thanks so much, Thad. So I, I would I die of envy listening to what Thad does because I work in a community health center where very few patients speak English as their first language, and um, that poses a certain um, challenge to doing pre-visit work. So we've um, done some creative things to try and get as much data out of our folks when they actually hit the door. Um, sending questionnaires doesn't really work 
um, even if you send things in uh, the patient's native language, because also our rates of illiteracy are fairly high. Uh, the immigrant population in Massachusetts tends to be quite variable. You have people from uh, Brazil with uh, PhDs, and you have people who are barely literate, um, speaking the same language and coming from the same culture. Um, we also have a majority provider and staff uh, fluency in multiple languages, which I think has helped tremendously. Um, the, it's clear from uh, from what I think the journey we've both been on in our, our two practices that a lot of things I think are classically associated with nursing are actually becoming medical assistant tasks. I think in an old-style, old-timey doctor's office, your nurse really was the person that greeted you and, and was really the person that would um, uh, be your um, connection to the doctor. And really what's happened as um, medicine has undergone a, a really big paradigm shift from uh, I see you, I take care of you while you're in front of me to I'm responsible for your health and your happiness throughout your lifetime, that that is really too much for uh, a single doctor and nurse pair to do. So we've had to use these other, um, other staff that are around um, to, to try and take care of people over their lifetime. And the medical assistance role has really blossomed. That, in turn, has freed up nurses to do even more interesting even more important types of care for patients, like managing chronic diseases. Um, what One of the things our nurses love to do um, and, and do really well, much, much better than us physicians, actually, is uh, have patients tell them what their everyday is like and how can we really help them change their everyday habits so that they're healthier and happier. Um, and that's behavior change is the holy grail of primary care. Um, and that the nurses are really important, I think, in that. The, the, the traditional method of managing um, really payments, I, I know everyone calls this a provider-centered model, but primary care is so broken that I, I actually take issue with that. I actually think it's a payment-centered model and that the poor provider is actually an equal victim in this, this scenario. And you can see everything is going through me and I'm one human being, and uh, it, I really can't actually do this now that technology has allowed us to really look at the person over their lifetime. It was always a bit dicey, but it's really impossible now. So um, if you see what we're trying to set up, we're trying to actually have everyone at the clinic form an independent relationship, a really powerful bond with the patient on the, in their own right. And this becomes really interesting across cultures. We, you know, we have we have Haitian Creole medical assistants helping Nepali patients manage their lifestyle changes, and that gets fun fast. Um, the the ability of people then to stay connected and, and really put relationship at the center of primary care, which I think is what we all really want to do but seem to be kept from doing it, um, is really what our goal is. And nurses are really good at this. They are relationship people. And if you free them, I have this sort of mental image of free the nurse, um, then she, he, RNs are really able to do the things that, um, that make the biggest difference to patients' lives because ultimately if we're not improving patients' lives, why? are we there, right? Where's his health care, after all? Okay. Um, I know Thad, and um, so, well, let's have you type comments. I'll sure. give you each of you another Great. minute or two. So I want to get Tristan here, and I have one more question for Ed. So. I, just, I just want to highlight one yeah. other really, I think, uh -huh. innovative uh, workforce change that we've had in our practice, and we've been fortunate to have with us a health coach. Um, this is a woman whose background is in fitness and got certification as a health coach, and really what her expertise is is in human psychology and behavior change. And as I mentioned before, in planned care visits, especially around chronic illness management, 
management, so much of that work is not just the purview of a physician or even a nurse or a nurse practitioner. People know how to do this work uh, other than those those licensed providers. And so our health coach works with patients to set very specific, short-term, measurable, actionable lifestyle improvement changes. And she works with folks all across the gamut from working on weight loss to stopping smoking to taking their medications more regularly to finding ways to reduce stress to improving sleep quality. So our health coach has become uh, an addition to the to the healthcare team that actually decompresses the work of the clinician. I am not an expert in helping somebody to make those behavior changes. We actually tried to train our clinicians to do it, and we found that we didn't do it nearly as well, and it took us twice as long. So from an efficiency standpoint, if we can share care with folks who have expertise in areas that we don't, we can really uh, provide a, an amazing patient experience. Very, very interesting. Did you want to so one more I, comment? Yeah, yeah. What, uh, two, because I talk quickly. So, uh, <laughs> um, what I, this this slide is my new favorite slide. Um, really, what doesn't go well when you're trying to do um, complex system change is when you try and start at say level three and you haven't done one and two. So, I, I would encourage. I'm sure we'll get to this in questions. Um, the audience to really pay attention to this slide. Um, I, I saw this and it resonated immediately with the, exactly the same progression that we had to work through at our site. And I so I, and it, it's based on data. So that's not surprising. Um, if you notice at the almost towards the very top, right, in the third from the top is patient-centered interactions, which is so counterintuitive, right? You'd think if you put them first, it'll all follow. It's really not true with a complex system. You really have to, to, to build enough of a system that you can even listen to them. We couldn't even hear the patient for so long. And now at Union Square, because we're dealing with so many different cultures, we've had to really go directly to patients and ask them because we have these we've many levels of barriers to, to trying to take care of them effectively. We now have patients integrated into all of our work teams, and we know, um, and we we have to do this from different cultures, and you know sometimes we have translators present, and it's just been incredibly enriching to learn from them what are the, the day-to-day barriers uh, in trying to help them. And I, I encourage folks to not wait necessarily to put patients into the, the transformational elements that you're trying to do in, in all of these stages, but really being, I found I couldn't hear them until I had organized enough of my day that I was not drinking from the fire hose. So great. Well, I want to. Uh, this is great, setting the table of lots of good stuff. And again, if you're on the phone and you're not able to see the slides, you can email info at ihi.org. The folks at CSI here at IHI have these slides and can just email them to you. All right, thank you both. I want to now turn. I'm going to go back to Ed just before we go to chat. But now I want to turn to Trissa Torres, who's a great listener uh, and uh, is kind of integrating, I'm sure, in real time here what she's hearing with a lot of. Uh, uh, the big picture stuff that you're working on in your own background. So, Trista, just your thoughts at all, but what you're hearing. Yeah, so one thing I think that we're hearing a lot of today is creative ways to apply team. Uh, and team is so important here. And, and, and so what you've heard a lot about is different ways to approach team. And there's lots of different ways to approach it um, and many different ways that can be effective. But I think a couple of things that are really important about the team approach. One is that it can certainly make life better for the team members. And so as or, uh, as 
practices transform, you'll find that physicians are happier um, as well as the staff is happier. They have better relationships amongst each other. They have better satisfaction because they feel like they're having um, helping their patients more, and their day flows better. So certainly the satisfaction of the team members is one positive. Um, efficiency in the day is another positive, um, and there's data to now show that, that people can um, get through more of the work faster. Doctors are going home sooner in the evening and spending time with their families, so that's a good thing too. Um, but most importantly, of course, is the effective team on the patients. Um, and, and oftentimes we'll find that there's an expectation that patients aren't going to like it. But what we find is patients do tend to love it. Patients actually get more attention, and they have a relationship with many people who now care for them. It's not just one person who they only have a few minutes with and is really hard to get to, but it's actually a whole team who cares about them. And that can have a very, very positive impact on the patients. And the other piece about that is that it's not only what happens during the visit, but we know that most healthcare is patients caring for themselves when they're outside of the practice. And so a lot of building this team is helping build support to the patients so when they go home, they're even better at taking care of themselves. All right. Thank you so much, Trista. That's really, really great observations. Uh, the questions are coming in fast and furious here. Thank you all on the chat there. Um, I'm going to just go back to Ed uh, for uh, two more minutes, Ed, because we promised we would just sneak in here because uh, it's important. Some of the things that maybe you did not see as you've uh, visited all these sites that maybe you had hoped to see or maybe hope to see in the near future. Well, I can only think, Madge, of one thing that we didn't see at all, and and that was we did not see an effective fee-for-service reimbursement strategy that supported all these innovations. Okay. That's, That's big... the one thing we didn't see anywhere. Okay. Sad to say. All right. Uh, other things that that uh, we didn't see as much of as we thought we might was Thad mentioned the importance of of having trained people to do self management support counseling, and what we didn't see very often were people uh, engaged in such a way that it was built into the the visit structure. Uh, we saw it often as a as a, something only for very special patients. The other thing that uh, I wished I had seen more of uh, but didn't was uh, registered nurses who were not glued to telephones. So, so much of the of that valuable resource that both uh, Kirsten and Thad talked about, the, the registered nurse in ambulatory practice, uh, was was often not available to many practices because the nurses were stuck on the telephone. Okay. So those are just a couple of things. And I guess we can assume that nurses were stuck on the phone dealing with things like, what, what would you say, um, Dad? Yeah. Well, I can talk a little bit about how we've transformed our nurse role. Yeah. So I would say three or four years ago, our nurses primarily were doing a lot of telephone-based care. Uh-huh. They were uh, receiving inbound calls from patients with acute care problems, and they were either dispensing med- medical advice or they were trying 
trying to triage to see if a patient needed to come into an office visit. And quite honestly, sometimes the reason they had to do all that triage is that we didn't have great access. So the question becomes, is the patient's presenting complaint so serious that it has to come in today? So you really have a nurse spending a lot of time doing something that's not value added to the patient. So one of the ways that we approached that was by uh, training RRNs to do a lot of work in chronic disease management. And so as a provider, I can refer a patient to my nurse to use a medication titration protocol to drive, say, diabetes care. If I start a patient on Lantus, titrate the dose, the nurse takes over that care. That frees me up then to not have a visit for that patient in three months or two weeks or whenever it was going to be, simply to titrate a Lantus dose. That doesn't have to be in a visit unless, of course, that's the only way you get paid. Um, if, if it doesn't have to be in a visit and you can share that care with the RN, the RN then takes over an awful lot of chronic disease planned care, which for the majority of the population does a really good job in helping them to achieve clinical targets. And also the nurse is a perfect person to help support um, self-efficacy and, and behavior change. That then allows me to be free to either welcome new patients to the practice, to see patients who have acute problems or decompensated chronic illness or, you know, multiply comorbid illness, the stuff that I'm best trained to do. And I would add um, that what happens in, again, in complex system change is that everybody wants to regress back to what is familiar. And nurses have been the center of practices for so long that um, really, in spite of, I think, our best efforts both at Thad's practice and my own, uh, we keep trying to refocus everyone away from asking nurses to do it because they know they can trust a nurse. it's, It's ironically the trust factor that nurses engender in everybody that overwhelms them um, and they wind up becoming everyone's answer to every problem in the clinic and we've gone so far as to hire an LPN to really run the floor. Um, LPNs in uh, in hospital-based systems don't really do much with triage and, and so they've had the ability to take RNs off of the sort of day-to-day tasks of reordering vaccines and, and administering them. Um, you know, this ironically has helped a little bit, but there's still this tendency to just have the nurse do it because you can trust them. And there's a tendency in healthcare to create pseudo-emergencies out of things that aren't actually emergent. And this really falls on nursing. And I, we're all, I think, working really diligently at trying to free them even more. It's, it is really interesting to me how difficult this is. Okay. Well, wow. Um, uh, this is fascinating. I'm multitasking. I'm listening to Kirsten uh, out of my ear, left ear here, and I'm looking at all your questions here, and folks are really, really uh, charged about this, which is fantastic. John, obviously people know what they're doing with chat, but just a quick reminder, and then we'll we'll go after some of these questions. Just a quick reminder, and I do think that a lot of you have figured this out in the send to part of the chat. Just make sure that you're sending it to all participants, and that way everybody here in the studio and everybody listening in at home um, or in their offices or in their practices will be able to see what you're asking and Uh commenting on. All right. And just a very quick comment. Thanks, John. Uh, If you're looking for some references or anything else, um, an article Kirsten likes very much, um, just remember, if we don't get it into the chat screen right away, all the resources will get posted to IHI.org tomorrow. So I'm going to go back to sort of where we started with uh, Thad um, talking a lot about um, medical assistance. And boy, are there a lot of questions. How do you find quality MAs? How is that working out? Uh, You know, uh, how's every 
everybody uh, getting along. Um, there are a zillion questions here, and Trissa can maybe even help me out uh, with any that you have seen. But um, people are wondering about level of training. Um, one is saying, who, where are you getting quality MAs with one year of education? Um, so so Kirsten. you're not, <laughs> right? Because you have one year of training. You, I was no good at, as an intern, right? Clearly. You, you need more than a year of training in any, any profession. Um, so just a quick shout out to one of the providers at our site that recognized this. Bonnie Cohen um, got a mini grant from the Mass League and of community health centers and developed an, a medical assistant community-based curriculum that took medical assistants, trained them in a series of lectures about what prevention was, what a hemoglobin A1C is versus what a hemoglobin is. Because what really doesn't work well in system transformation is if you have someone just doing a job they don't understand, they don't have the mission, the values, they don't have that inside of them. The work has to be shared. It has to be at the center of why everybody comes to work every single day. And if you are asked to do a series of checklist tasks with all um, deference to Atul Gawande, checklists are not inspirational. The inspiring part of doing healthcare is really transforming someone's life. And if you don't understand why ordering the correct test is going to help that person live longer and have a more meaningful existence and see their grandkids graduate college, it's not going to stick. She develops an entire curriculum that we're happy to share um, and it, it really transformed what the medical assistants understood about their work. They're all, all without exception now, pursuing advanced degrees in some form or another, mostly nursing. It has transformed their relationship to healthcare and to the patients. All right. Well, a lot, of, a lot of people are looking for that medical assistant curriculum. So I promise you we'll, we'll figure out how to uh, share it on our website tomorrow, um, by tomorrow morning. And. Ed, Ed, yes. Go ahead, Ed. Yes. Yeah, some observations across the 30 sites. One, one, uh, uh, we kept hearing a recurrent theme is when you're hiring medical assistants, you hire for attitude, mm -hmm. not, not necessarily for training. And what people mean by that is you hire people who are, who are bright with good interpersonal skills and then the specific medical skill training, uh, the practice undertakes itself. Okay. We've, we've, we saw this repeatedly. All right. Thank you very much. Uh, Another Trisa, thing that I yeah. see in the chat a lot is questions about numbers. Uh, how many MAs per doctor? How, um, how do you create those teams? And I think one thing is that every practice is different. And part of what defines that practice is the populations that they serve and the kinds of needs in those populations. You know, how many of them are chronic disease versus just showing up for acute illnesses? How much young? How much old? But so given that variation, what kinds of principles do you think people would bring to kind of determining what their team should look like, both in terms of who should be on their team and how many people in those roles? Okay. Questions about social workers. People are asking a little bit about behavioral health. It was alluded to. Um, I know, I mean, one of the things, and I'll have Ed say something about this before we wrap up today, you will learn a lot more about all the sites um, when the LEAP uh, initiative uh, concludes. So we're, we're kind of getting a taste here. But Thad, anything you want to say about behavioral health? And there was also a question about social workers. Sure. I'll start with the behavioral health question. So um, we recognized very early on that in order to be providing patient-centered medical home-type care, comprehensive care, given that 
about 50% of all primary care visits have some behavioral health component, we knew that we needed to integrate our behavioral health providers into the practice. So I'm, I'm fortunate to practice in an organization that's a multi-specialty uh, group, and we have had a behavioral health department. Of course, as soon as you say the word department, you picture these silos. They were up on the third floor, we were down on the second floor, and while it's only 15 stairs, it feels like it's 15,000 miles. So actually, physical proximity made a very big difference for us. We took uh, three providers from the behavioral health department who, uh, two are licensed clinical social workers and another is a clinical psychologist, and embedded them down in the, in the internal medicine practice at different hours throughout the day. And that has really allowed for the primary care teams to um, be able to make real-time warm handoffs to behavioral health providers for patients who are in crisis, um, for patients who have substance abuse problems, for patients who really need counseling now and can't wait the two or three weeks it's going to take to work through the usual channels to get a visit. So that integration has been a huge win for our patients, and it also has helped to decompress the providers in primary care during the day. As much as possible, we want to still make sure that the relationships are uh, supported between the patient and the and the internal medicine provider, but I can't sit with somebody for an hour and a half and go through the very difficult emotional work when someone's in crisis. That needs to be done by somebody else for me to continue on for the rest of the day. That integration has been absolutely critical to allow both the efficiency on the primary care side and the patient-centeredness. I can certainly take social work for the right. community health center. Yeah. Um, so, so we did not have social work for uh, the first 10 years of this practice, and we became very adept at navigating websites. But really what happens, um, this similar process that um, that Thad outlined with, with behavioral health is, you know, a lot of people's day-to-day problems are a distraction from their ability to focus on their health and to really transform um, a chronic disease that's completely dominating um, um, their outcomes to something that they know that they have control over. You can't you can't focus on your health if you don't have a house, if you don't have enough food. You know, it's a silly thing to counsel someone on nutrition if they're um, if they're homeless. So so you really do need social work. You need it's 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 quite common sense, surprisingly, for healthcare that actually if you take care of people's basic needs, um, that big things happen. And social work has always been um, key for that. You know, the big problem that we keep circling around here and that Ed mentioned at the very beginning is that none of the things that we know really matter are currently paid for. The payment structure really either has to change or I think as a society we need to start asking big questions like how much do we value health? Um, because social work is essentially unpaid. Um, you know, health counseling has, you know, Thad's amazing um, position is not a paid position. He doesn't, he doesn't get to charge a thing for all of that. That counseling, all he gets to do is ask his providers to see more and more patients faster. So I, I think we need to start asking the, those really big um, questions because primary care is clearly broken and it's not going to get fixed by us including more people in the room uh, until those, those, those outside elements really change. It's helped. I'm happier. Thanks, Kirsten. But it's not fixed. Trissa, yeah. But so from the payment perspective, I think that one thing that I'm seeing that's optimistic is we're starting to see some payment changes. So um, there's some incentives for providers that are patient-centered medical homes, and you can get some care management fees now where you haven't been able to get those before. Um, with some of the ACO types of contracts, there's some shared savings that people can participate in. This isn't, um, this doesn't solve the problem, but it's certainly a step in the direction to help facilitate
facilitate the changes that we all want to see. Um, but even given the idea that there are some um, at least pieces of payment um, available to start to transform, and then going back to the questions that we had kind of about right-sizing, Ed, is there anything else that, that you saw from visiting all these practices around right-sizing the teams and, and what kinds of principles people bring to trying to figure out who's on their team, how many, and how to really right-size and format their teams? Yeah, it's interesting, Trissa. We, we saw everything from a half of a medical assistant per provider to three medical assistants per provider. And it, and it all has to do really with, uh, with the, the distribution of functions. Um, but I think, I think the, 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 more important than the ratio, uh, is, uh, is, uh, figuring out how you want the team to, to actually divide up the workload. Um, so there isn't going to be a, a single number, uh, that, uh, is going to apply across all practices. Providers differ in, in their work style, populations differ, but most importantly, teams delegate the work uh, that has to be done over the course of a, of a practice day differently, uh, and that's going to determine uh, th- these ratios. Thanks. Thanks, Ed, very much. Uh, I'm going to just press on just one a little bit more on the payment issue because we have some sort of people there who are scratching their heads and they're saying, so how are folks really doing this? Your uh, mentions, uh, Trista, notwithstanding, uh, some folks are wondering, how is anyone uh, making this work out financially? So what's happening is that um, primary care providers, ironically, just as we hit this sweet spot of feeling like we're not all going to just run out and retrain as dermatologists, is they're now pushing us to, and I love dermatology, it's actually on my clinical interest, which is why I say it, um, is, uh, is pushing our panel numbers up to really really high levels that I, I think we find very challenging. Because again, if relationship is the basis of, of primary care, it's very challenging to have a meaningful relationship with thousands of people um, as a PCP. Um, and, and now there's wonderful optimistic signs that a lot of the screenings that we were doing perhaps very often, like pap smears, are no longer required every year if you have had normal screenings in most of the population. Um, so that, it makes it certainly more possible. But I, I think that because again, payment is still sort of at the center of our system, one of the ways they've they've tried to pay for more involvement in team and supplementing some of these things like integrating behavioral health is to ask us to see more and more and more people and manage more and more and more people over their lifetime. So a, a tension of some sort there. What do you think then? Well, I, I have a couple Marge, comments. I, oh, sorry. <laughs> Shall we say Ed and then Thad or Thad and then Ed? No, I, I'll, I'll, I'll defer to Ed. <laughs> Okay. Well, I, I was just going to just uh, again a quick summary across what we what, what we're seeing from the thirty sites is is one uh, all thir- every one of those sites is uh, I would call entrepreneurial in the best sense of the word. So they're constantly looking whether they're community health centers or private practices. They're constantly looking for 
uh, insurers who are who are experimenting with some of these new medical home bundled or capitated payments. They're constantly looking for local and uh, and regional grant opportunities. Um, they're constantly looking for uh, training institutions that have students that uh, they want to put into uh, practice situations. So uh, so they're they're being they're being aggressively entrepreneurial in the best sense of the word, looking for every conceivable funding opportunity, and and that's how they're doing it. Thanks, uh, thanks, Ed. That just to piggyback on that. So again, at uh, Harvard Vanguard, we're fortunate to have a payment model that is not exclusively fee for service. About fifty um, percent of our patients are incapitated contracts, and that constitutes a large revenue stream for us. And we also are in quality contracts with uh, local insurance providers that. Essentially, if we know that we can create the clinical capacity to deliver the quality of care that we will be paid for that in some way, but you have to trust in the system that ultimately by creating capacity, by driving improvements in clinical quality, that you can ultimately realize those gains. I think it's also important to get back to something that, that Kirsten mentioned. I mean, I think the reality is we will have to see more patients in one sense, that there are fewer primary care providers nationally. There is an aging demographic. That is a, that is a reality. So we're starting to think, what would it be like to take care of an even larger panel of patients? And very specifically within this context, how do you own a relationship at the team level? Because as we said at the very beginning, it's not, it's not possible for one person to own all of the work. It's also not possible or really a, um, a, an enviable position to own the entire relationship. So how do I work with my nurse practitioner and nurse and the medical assistant to create an environment where my patient feels like they are cared for by the entire team. And if I say that my nurse is going to be focused on a particular aspect of that person's health and my MA is doing something else, that that patient trusts in the team as much as they would trust in the provider. That's an important shift that we have to get to. I think it's going to be a major cultural shift for patients to say that they are comfortable receiving care from teams. Um, And if we don't get there, I think it's really going to be challenging to meet the demographic graphic uh, challenges of future. And we can, I love actually corresponding over the secure patient portal, and I do it in all sorts of crazy languages, and and that's part of what I love about my job. It's wonderful to care for someone on their terms. You don't have to haul them in necessarily um, with with capitation um, or, you know, these quality contracts that that is referring to, and Cambridge Health Alliance also has has aggressively pursued these, uh, and uh, and Union Square in particular, as as usual, makes um, a really key point. Um, so it, a lot of the ways that we have to do to manage more people, because it is necessary, as, as much as there is attention now, are, are there. It's just a matter of helping us to really make those more robust. Many patients are perfectly happy to be reassured if they know that I'm on the other end of a keyboard. And I know these patients. I can reassure them. If I can't, I ask you to come in. Right now, really, the whole system is still structured to make them come into the office. And that's the tension still. Um, it's sort of now we're, you know, we freed the nurse, maybe next we can free the provider. That would be great. Um, I wanted, I'm going to try and capture just a couple of other questions that are still swirling around here. Uh, there are some folks who are wondering about pharmacists and whether they are kind of hardwired in, into the process. And others who, while we're talking about nurses and nurse practitioners, uh, 
are having a sense, uh, partly from the visuals and probably uh, from the emphasis on medical assistance, that they're still a little bit fuzzy on uh, what's what's changing and evolving for, for nurses and perhaps the use of nurse practitioners. So I don't know who wants to go. And I even, Trissa, I don't know if you have any kind of high-level feeling about that in terms of what you're seeing right now. So, and I also did see other questions about other people. So we're yes. talking pharmacists, we're coaches. talking nurses, we're talking coaches, we're talking community health workers. Yeah. So, so there's all of these different roles and, and an opportunity to incorporate many. And again, how you develop your team is going to depend a lot on um, the needs of your patient population. Um, and, and, and we've seen models where any and all of these can be incorporated as part of the team, and, and many of those can be successful. Uh, and so from, and there's, and one of the things that you see when you think about how to incorporate these different roles on your team is kind of the difference between co-location, um, what you heard talked about earlier, that they practice side by side. Yes, we have a pharmacist in the clinic, but they kind of do their own thing and we do their own our own thing. That's kind of the the early not as effective way. And then you then you go to the next step where you're where you practice um, together and then the more you the more sophisticated it gets, the more integrated it becomes. Um, but that's when you have people working at the site on the on site. Then when you talk about things like community health workers and others who are out in the community, we still have to figure out a way to integrate them into part of the team so that we're from the patient's perspective, we're all working together as a team, but these people are not necessarily on site. But there are, again, very good models where we've seen those types of people be integrated into the teams as well. And role definition solves a lot of that problem because fortunately, again, this makes me, this keeps me sane, I feel like, is that role definition really is how you integrate any complex team together. So, so what you have at Union Square is we ha- we're very fortunate to have been given a pharmacist. I feel like it's a gift, so I'll call it that. Um, and he and the nurses immediately went off in a corner and muttered and came back with a fully integrated model because nursing had been really wanting the the role that he can can play with our patients. And now the direct patient care, and I mean, I have diabetic patients that I don't see for months and months and months. They come back absolutely perfect. And it's, you know, it isn't a miracle. It's nursing and pharmacy. So that that role definition, I think, really clarifies how you integrate new people into the team, and you're constantly going back to it with this. Um, you're, and, it, and it also puts the work and keeps the work at the center, which is at least a surrogate for the patient. I think we're, we're finally getting to the patient in all of this, which is really rewarding. Um, but that that is tremendous. So I think it gets back to the staff question as well in terms of ratios, it's role definition. What role are they serving? And then you can figure out the proportion of time that you need based on your population's needs. Um, and that's why there isn't a simple answer to this. Okay. Well, there's a lot of wonderful, thank you, Kirsten, and everyone, and uh, people are sort of having a conversation on the chat as well, uh, which is great. Uh, don't forget, you can download this chat uh, when you get off the program to, today, so it's yours as well to refer to. It'll also be posted to IHI.org tomorrow. Just a very uh, couple quick things before we sort of wrap up because we've just sped through this hour here. Um, I want to have Ed just tell us very, very quickly uh, what should we look for next uh, with the LEAP initiative and to sort of find out even more uh, what has been learned um, in in this whole process here. And um, also, Ed, there were questions in the chat, uh, references made by uh, certainly Kirsten and maybe by Thad as well, 
organizations having some role in design and you know flow and figuring things out. And I maybe I'll just throw that one to you as um, as part of your uh, kind of wrap up here. Um, across the 30 sites, uh, do you see or have you seen patients playing a fairly significant role in the design aspects of things? Uh, short answer, Madge is uh, yes. Okay. Um, and and not just not just in uh, sort of uh, having a patient representative on one committee, but actually having patients actively engaged in all of the quality improvement practice transformation uh, activities uh, of the practice. Uh, so yes, we're, we have seen it. We're seeing it increasingly, uh, and uh, and those practices that are really taking it seriously and not just uh, uh, you know for show uh, are are uh, testifying that it's making a major difference. Okay, and and what if we watch this space with leap? Uh, and follow, and um, you know what what happens next. Uh, what should we be looking for in in the near term, or as this project uh, kind of reaches its um, conclusion? Well, where we are now is we've finished the thirty site visits. Uh, those data are being summarized. We're bringing all thirty sites together. Uh, in a meeting uh, in Seattle uh, later this month where we're going to begin a conversation that we hope will be going on for months with with uh, our team and the 30 sites about what collectively have we learned and then trying to summarize that uh, and and come up with some very concrete recommendations and then materials uh, tools and and other resources that would support those recommendations. Uh, we will have a we have are developing a project website, and all of that uh, everything that we uh, come up with uh, will be on that website as just as soon as it's ready for uh, for public use. Somebody is asking, <laughs> is the Seattle meeting open or is it possible to observe? Do you want these thousand people who are on today's WIHI to hop a plane to Seattle or should they, should they wait for uh, the, the articles in the website? <laughs> Yeah, please wait. Uh, but we'll, we'll, we'll get, we'll try to get the learnings out just as fast as we possibly can. All right. Uh, that's, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you out. You know, that's, that's terrific. Well, Ed Wagner, uh, we reached him in North Carolina. He's usually in Seattle, where I know Trista saw him also very recently. Ed, I want to, uh, thank you very, very much for your time today. And, um, I can, feel a WIHI in my bones for when uh, this all the work starts to wrap up and some of the findings and recommendations, so that's really exciting. Um, and uh, Trissa Torres, thank you for making a time. I always love it when I can uh, barge into Trissa's schedule and get her to join us on a WIHI. Thad Chilling as well. And Kirsten Meisinger, it's just been fabulous. Um, so now you two know each other and we know about your work and I hope you won't be strangers here uh, at IHI. 
I want to remind everybody, when you sign off on today's show, you can download the chat and all the resources. And do look on IHI.org tomorrow morning for everything. References that have been made today, resources, slides, chat, the audio, etc. Uh, John, maybe you want to throw up that poll again just to make sure people saw it. But I actually am going to invite those of you who have just a little wiggle room in your schedule today. We're going to do something completely different. We're going to say goodbye and thank you, as I've been doing, to today's guests, Ed Wagner, Trissa Torres, Kirsten Meisinger, and Thad Schilling. And we're going to welcome to the studio and to WIHI, IHI Senior Vice President Joanne Healy, who practically grew up at IHI's National Forum. And she has, there's a super strong connection between the kind of shared learning we're doing today and on WIHI and IHI's signature event in Orlando that's coming up in December. So if you can afford the extra time today, stay with us for some minutes now. We'll stick around for as long as you can, uh, no longer than 3.30. And I want to have Joanne talk a little bit about uh, the forum coming up. I answer your questions and comments, and then I'll wrap things up uh, completely right at 3.30. But again, thank you, Trissa, Thad, and Kirsten, and welcome, Joanne. Well, thank you, Madge. It's really great to be here and exciting to be talking about IHI's flagship program, the National Forum. It's really exciting. Every December, we gear up to bring 6,000 people to Orlando, and um, it creates just an exciting conference. It's at the Orlando World Center Marriott this year, and I just wanted to give you a little flavor of what the forum is, because there's conferences that you can go to all around the world, but the um, the special sauce about this conference is that it's four days, and there's the typical learning labs and mini-courses and workshops, but that's never what we see on the evaluation as what brings people to this conference. People uh, come and they say what they really get out of this is that they recharge their batteries, they re-energize themselves to get back to the daily grind of work, that they meet like-minded people that there isn't a place in the hallway or in any of the sessions that they go to where they don't see people who are struggling with the same things that they're struggling with in their organizations. Uh, they also they leave with helpful tools, tools that they can apply immediately, and also innovative ideas that they can go back, talk over with their colleagues, and um, and begin to change and uh, help their organization immediately. So the networking is the biggest thing. It's the opportunity to meet new people, say hello to old friends, because there's a lot of people that come back year after year. Because even though the format is similar, the sessions are always different, and there's always new um, and exciting content. The um, the other thing I want to just let you know is that every we're working a lot at IHI and trying to think about new ways to kind of engage people in different learning model methods. Um, so at the forum, we've also incorporated a lot of different things that different type of unique learning opportunities for people who don't want to just sit in a in a classroom and um, have uh, group to conversations. And these are um, things that we're calling um, there's virtual site visits. So there's a lot of uh, flagship organizations out there doing tremendous things, and we've all heard some of their names. They're uh, Bell and, and uh, uh, Cincinnati Children's and Kaiser Permanente and Henry Ford. They're all creating these sessions called virtual site visits where um, they allow you to kind of sneak a peek into those organizations to see what makes them so special and what are the innovative things that they're doing. 
Uh, the other in- d- different ideas are these excursions. The idea that sometimes people learn better by going out into the field, into creative um, field trips, quality improvement field trips, to different places to kind of get their head out of the healthcare field and think about something different. So some of these excursions are, are traveling through the Marriott World Center, which is one of the most beautiful hotels there, but it services the 6,000 people that we'll have at the forum. And you can learn to understand large-scale work. How do they feed that many people? By getting behind-the-scene um, tours to re- understand how they work. And then there's another one at the Gaylord Palms, which is um, joy in work. They frequently get praised as their, for their staff satisfaction. There's one at the Florida Zoo, which is on patient safety. And then the new one this year that I just want to call out is to Legoland, and Legoland is going to be talking about managing complex systems, and it's a theme park. Basically, they're doing a new theme park, and that you get to see how all the pieces fit together from dealing with customers to customer service, uh, innovations, and those types of things. So that's an interest. That's a new one that we're excited about. Uh, it's great, uh, Joanne. Thanks for all that uh, discussion. I mean, it, it's true that um, the we also have a wonderful conference that happens in this the spring, uh, even you know centered around primary care in the community. There are still many sessions at the forum uh, that relate to what we're talking about today uh, on uh, WIHI. Um, we have some learning sessions coming up on the patient-centered medical home. Uh, there's um, some. Uh, mini courses as well. Uh, there's a discussion about uh, South Central Foundation, um, which, uh, you know, Malcolm Baldridge National Quality Award winner. You can learn a lot about NUCA and kind of the sort of groundbreaking stuff that's going on there. There's a, a wonderful session called Patient-Centered Segmentation and Designing for Health. I think we were just listening um, uh, to our guests on today's WIHI talking about different kinds of issues and needs with the uh, patient populations and how to match those patient issues with the right provider at the right time. So um, we're going to also at the forum, uh, Joanne, Primary Care Transformation to Improve Oregon Health. Oregon's uh, Health, yeah. There's a lot and there's a ton, Madge. I mean, I would lo- encourage everybody to go to the IHI.org website. You can you can sort and look at all the different content by whatever area that you, you're interested in. There's, there's It's um, organized in a way to help you search through it and if you're interested in managing populations, patient safety, uh, persons and family-centered care, cost, quality, and value, and improvement skills and leadership. They're all different things that you'll be able to search on to see a ton of of great speakers, great organizations, and great um, new tools and innovations that you can apply. Okay, thanks. Um, about the forum, I I know we're switching gears here a little bit, but listen, it's uh, we we figure we'll we'll take it, we'll uh, some continuity here, uh, both uh, in terms of content and and events that we're trying to do. Um, I uh, want to know if any of you who are still sticking around, and thanks for doing so. Do you have any questions? Uh, maybe just a couple of things right now in terms of timelines, deadlines. You know, in enrolling any kind of special opportunities uh, uh, for coming as a group group discounts, anything like that, Joanne. But fire away, folks, if you've got some questions, we'll be happy to answer. Some of the some of the other interesting things we do, a lot of people come to the forum and they bring uh, groups of 20, 30, 40, sometimes 60 and 70 people. 
And that sounds a little crazy in these times when travel budgets are cut. But what people are saying is that, that the only way to get through some of these difficult times is to really learn some new ways of doing things. So they find that um, that's that's their answer to the, so the struggles that they're dealing with, is to try to get everybody on board thinking as innovatively and creatively as they can about what they can do to meet the challenges in the future. The other, there's some other things we're trying to do uh, engage people in social media so there's a, a bunch of lunch and learns there's two actually uh, one is on uh, social media 101 and for those people who are familiar with it and come it would be great for you to be able to help some of the people who are just now getting into it but social media 101 would be on uh, it's on Tuesday at lunch at lunchtime and another um, lunch and learn that we're doing that's really exciting is that you know for years we have been trying to figure out how do we include diversity and equity in healthcare into the forum in a way that really makes a, perhaps a meaningful change. And w- we've been struggling. So what we've decided to do this year is let's open it up to have a conversation and a lunch and learn where we can really come up with three things that we need to achieve health equity uh, in healthcare, and then figure out some concrete ways that we can use perhaps next year's 26th forum to be able to um, share more of that content to move that area. It's a really critical area, and we haven't really had a lot of uh, success in putting good content out there for that. Now, I'm, I'm sure we mentioned, but I might have been distracted, that it's our 25th, 25th. 25th anniversary, so that's another reason you might want to be part of, of that whole uh, energy and buzz. A couple of questions here about scholarships, discounts, learning labs, etc., and a lot of this is on the website. I don't know if Joanne has uh, some info at her fingertips, so if you go to IHI.org on the homepage right now, just scroll down just a little, and you'll see this conference come up. Click on the links. There's just a wonderful array of details now uh, on the website, very user-friendly to find out all the learning labs and mini-courses. It's true, and right now our enrollment is is going through the roof, and we just want to make sure that we get the word out there to get as many people there connecting, because it's really, it's not just the topics, but it's the connections and the friendships that people make while they're there that are are really important. And just one other thing I'd add, if there's no way that you can get free in December because it's a busy time for people, we also have, you know, just thinking about following up on Ed Wagner's presentation, at our 15th annual international summit on improving patient care in the office practice and the community, longest title for our program. Um, it, we have Ed Wagner as, a, as a, um, a presenter at that as well, and that's in Washington, D.C. on March 9th through the 11th on, on 2014. So that's another um, large conference that we run, which really gears itself towards the um, office practice and the community setting. So if you're not able to join us in December, um, hopefully you can join us there. All right, but Orlando, Florida might be the place to be warmer, warmer <laughs> in December. Very obvious on the website where folks could find out about scholarships and discounts, uh, that that sort of thing. All is clear on there. If you have yeah. any questions about it, go to the website or just call our main number and we right. can answer your Or questions. email info at IHI.org. Thanks for those of you who are chatting in about some of your own experiences uh, at the forum. Um, you know, we're going, um, it, I think we'll probably start to wrap up right now. I think that's good. I really thank you, those of you who um, stayed around uh, to learn more about that, uh, feel free to uh, email us at info at IHI.org. Check out the website, all the riches of going on at the forum, and really consider it. We'd love to see you there. Um, you know, it's kind of WIHI on steroids, I might say. I'm not, I've never said that before, <laughs> but it, it has a feeling uh, of, of that <laughs> in, in terms of uh, great intensity. Um, you know, part of what's going 
gone on, I think, also is when we're talking about primary care today and all the issues that are on the agenda at, at the forum, it's increasingly related, this kind of notion that we're talking about the hospital sector or the primary care sector. Um, it's it's very interrelated in terms of the future of healthcare and population health and ACOs and whatever. So um, I really do think if you're working in primary care, I think you should look carefully at a lot of the offerings at the forum because you are implicated in just about any of those things that are being talked about. So I, I hope uh, you'll, you'll find that as well. All right. So here are my final spiel remarks uh, today. I want to thank our audience. I want to thank Joanne Healy for coming in here at the tail end and uh, Jenna, who uh, came in as well to sort of help out with some of the information. Uh, Next up on WIHI on October 24th, uh, just two weeks from now, Who's Conversation Ready? And that's about how healthcare can respect end-of-life wishes. Very exciting initiative going on here uh, at IHI that's about to enter a whole new phase two. The web page about this is now live, so you can check it out. A reminder for those of you who haven't already done so, when you get off the show today, make sure to download the chat, the slides, uh, etc. Any questions whatsoever, uh, things aren't clear, you can email info at IHI.org. The people who help make WIHI possible are Mike Sweeney, Jameson Case, Jesse McCall, Alan Olison, Vicki Minden, John Gothier, Jane Rossner, Val Weber, Matt Morse, and Stephanie Moncayo. And uh, we always try and have some nice music introducing and closing WIHI. So it's my privilege to host a program that's about spirited learning and improving patient care and health most of all. For the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, you've been a fantastic audience for WIHI. Good day, everyone. <laughs>